I read something the other day that was really helpful that in, that in parenting, instead of preparing their kids for the road, we try to prepare the road for our kids, which at one level is really good. But if we have, if that comes out of this kind of insecurity and this deep form of anxiety, like that becomes a very different reality, which I think we did see in COVID a lot, like a lot of parents really angry because they felt like it was a roadblock for their kid right. and they couldn't be a good parent unless that road was cleared and it was their job to clear that. So it's just no wonder parents are utterly exhausted. Hey, welcome to the Resolutions Podcast, where we like to turn difficult topics into helpful conversations. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, along with our co-host, Michael Gum. Hello, friends. Okay, so Michael, season three of the Resolutions podcast launches right around the time most parents are getting their school-aged children back to class. Yeah. We're talking public school, private school, even homeschoolers. Uh, Therefore, we thought it would be interesting to create an episode for parents that talks about parenting trends in the 2020s and some of the undetected parenting and educational pitfalls that are beginning to appear from the observation decks of psychology and sociology. Mm. Yeah, so uh, let me be quick to say up front that this is a show for involved parents who want to do what is right by their children when it comes to positioning our sons and daughters for success in life. Yeah. Sounds helpful, right? It does. <laughs> I, I want to specifically reference the idea of helping our kids develop a sense of resilience. Hmm. Resilience is perhaps best described as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we're talking mental toughness and emotional fortitude. Mm-hmm. We could all use a bit of that. Right. What the world needs now. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> In clinical settings, as I'm sure you know, Michael, our listeners know, uh, resilience is often discussed as an objective for trauma recovery. Okay. Uh, but here's the thing. Resilience is something that can be developed within a wise parenting strategy in the context of a safe home. Uh, Resilience can be cultivated in age-appropriate ways when we let our children struggle with consequences and allow them to work through difficult circumstances with parental guidance rather than parental control or relief. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So I want to encourage listeners to give this episode consideration with an open mind. This is especially true if you are a parent, a grandparent, or a guardian. And even if you aren't currently raising a son or daughter, this is an episode that you will probably want to recommend. With the help of a special guest, we are going to explore a widely accepted parenting philosophy and the less than ideal social, emotional, and mental impacts in both the short and long term on our families and our children during very formative years. Good. So, Michael, uh, this uh, this definitely addresses a life phase that, that you're in. I think it's worth noting that you and your wife are just now beginning to enter the school age years with your kids, with mm-hmm. academics. Also comes a new world of what we refer to as the extracurriculars, sure, the yeah. clubs, the sports, mm-hmm. the arts. Uh, you know, I imagine that already you've had numerous conversations on a parenting level regarding your family schedule, time investments 
states what constitutes accomplishments for your kiddos. Am, am I right with that? What's that? Yeah, sound like? you know, and you, you're very good to point out there that we are at the very beginning of this this process. Um, you know, our our oldest is in first grade right now, so you know we're we're not really having to do a ton of juggling of extracurriculars and stuff. Um, but you know, it's, it's on the horizon and, you know, we can, we can see people getting into that, um, already. And uh, it's something that, that we, we, we have our eye on, but I don't think that we're going to feel the, the pressure to, to get caught up in all of that. I have the privilege, of course, of knowing your wife. I can I can say with 100% certainty that she is a fan of excellence. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I know that she strives for that in, in anything that she uh, that she takes on. Uh, I would I would include parenting in that. And then also, uh, you know, I'll remind our listeners that uh, that you have a degree in leadership. And, That's true. Uh, and that uh, I know that you have insight into not just the uh, the present, but the proactive things, how to look out and to, and, to, and to aim for a specific target. Does that does that factor in at all with, you know, the parenting strategy at this age for you guys? Well, I think naturally it does just, you know, secondhand, like, you know, I, I'm not going to be sitting down with my kids and making them read a book on leadership theory or anything. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, th- I think there's little things that I've learned along the way of, uh, you know, I think the book that always comes to mind for me is the seven habits of highly effective people. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's little nuggets that I've pulled out of that, of keeping the main thing, the main thing mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, seeking first to understand then to be understood. I mean, that's one of my life mottos, I think at this point. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I try to, I try to bring that into my my parenting, and and hopefully I I can instill that in my kids as well. But, uh, but yeah, I think I think in in little ways I, there there will be some things that I'm bringing to the table from from that. Yeah, every everybody uh, I would say has whether you're a parent or not. Everybody's got an opinion on parenting. Before oh, sure. before my wife and I, you know, became parents, we were busy writing a book entitled Things I Would Never Do If I Were a Parent. <laughs> okay. And of course we have trashed that manuscript <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, but that I think that's that's why I'm so excited about um, you know, today's particular episode. Um our special guest today is noted speaker, author, and educator, Dr. Andrew Root, or Andy, as he prefers. Uh, Andy has a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. He is the Kerry Olson Bailson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He writes and researches in areas of theology, sociology, culture, and younger generations. Uh, he is a successful author with his most recent books. Listen to these titles, Michael. Uh, Churches and the Crisis of Decline. The Congregation in a Secular Age. Mm-hmm. The end of youth ministry. Was that a question mark there? <laughs> yes, end of it youth was. Ministry? yes, okay. it was. Yeah. Uh, the pastor in a secular age, why people no longer need God. Uh, and here's, here's a favorite uh, title of mine uh, from his books, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies. Oh. <laughs> right. So uh, this guy is just an incredible thinker. Uh, he does a great, great job as a, as a, when it comes to studying the culture and really uh, looking out into the future and and really doing a great job commentating on you know trends and where they may be heading. Uh, in early 2020, I picked up a copy of Andy's book titled 
the end of youth ministry. Mm -hmm. And there is a question mark there, why parents don't really care about youth groups and what youth workers should do about it. Uh, To be honest, Michael, I bought this book as a recreational read. Uh, Given what I knew about Andy's uncanny take on American culture and parenting, I thought this book would be interesting. But little did I know, by 2022, it would prove to be very prophetic. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Turns out that the book and this interview have more to do with the parenting predicaments of the 2020s than the traditional offerings of youth-oriented activities available through churches, parachurches, civic clubs, schools, etc., In this conversation, Andy talks about the shift in parenting that has taken place over the past 40 years in American culture. He describes the permissive parenting of the 1980s, the helicopter parenting that followed, and ultimately the bulldozer parenting that is commonly subscribed to in today's world by very sincere and committed parents. Mm Andy then takes the conversation into the short and long-term consequences that result from the pursuit of happiness that is so often emphasized in contemporary ideation. Uh, This interview was a lot of fun and frankly stimulating for me, and I think listeners will find the conversation fascinating. So we now pick up on the conversation with our special guest, Dr. Andy Root. Afterwards, Michael, you and I will be back with some closing remarks and resources. The real driving force behind the book, this was, this is probably, this is the only book I've written that I would, it was an assignment. So I was part of a large grant at uh, Yale Divinity School's uh, Center for Faith and Culture, and they had a large uh, John Templeton grant looking at joy and human flourishing which was a kind of odd grant in itself. Like how does joy inform what it means to, to, to flourish as a human being? And they had a section in that because of a, a, a really great advocate named Skip Masbach uh, towards young people and families and thinking about that. So I was on a couple of advisory councils for that grant. And one of the outputs of that grant, um, especially the adolescent wing of it, was to write a book. And at some meeting, they all pointed at me and said, you're going to write the book. And I was like, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> but it, it really did become a, a passion project and something I, I you know, grew to love and it became my own. But it really is this kind of wrestling with um, what leads young people and ultimately families here. The, the book became very kind of parent centric, I mm-hmm. think. I mean, yeah. In some ways, it's a youth ministry book, but really it's a it's a kind of parenting book and thinking about the cultural impacts that are, are, are kind of heaved under the lap of parents, I mm-hmm. think. Um, and it really was around this question of what does it mean to flourish? What does it mean for human beings to live a good life? What is a good life? How do we make sense uh, of a good life? So there was a lot of research done through that grant from a lot of different scholars across a lot of different fields, kind of thinking about human flourishing and thinking about what the good life is. And I was able to mine a lot of that um, and bring it into thinking well, like, for Protestant youth workers for that are, are working with parents on the ground. How, how do we think about the way our, our visions of the good life affect our kids? And how does that have a direct effect on how we think about what it means to be a good parent? And so that was really kind of what was driving behind this. I mean, trying to unpack even for myself as a parent, what kind of good life am I trying to give my kids? And sometimes they're they're explicit, you know, like I'm explicitly trying to do that, but more often than not, the kind of good life I'm delivering to my kids is 
just happens. Like I, I'm, I'm impacted so much by the culture that I say, this is what the good life is that maybe right. malforms them as opposed to forming them in, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fascinating, right? How, uh, how you weren't looking <laughs> you know, to step into a project like this, but again, there was, a, there's a bit of providence to it, especially in the yeah. timing of it. Um, and I, and I want to be clear again, adding to something you said, uh, this is not a book that diminishes youth ministry or devalues youth pastors. Uh, anybody listening to this show knows my history, long time youth pastor have worked with teens throughout my entire adult life. Uh, so I am a big fan of supporting teens as they transition from childhood to adulthood. This book, however, is indeed about a shift in parenting that has happened in many regions throughout the U.S. over the past decade or more. And when you talk about flourishing, and when you talk about uh, the good life, I, I would echo that. And, and I would say, you know, many times for parents or if it's youth pastors looking to support uh, good uh, homes, really their choices that they're trying to address in that context, in their systemic context is not right versus wrong, good versus evil, but it's often the difference between uh, good, better, or best. And the idea of best is really subjective, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, talk to us a little about, you know, what is the idea of best in yeah. so many cases with parents as they're trying to facilitate this, this goal, this objective for their children. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that came out so starkly for me, and, and again, writing this, I'm, I, any, there is really no condemnation for the youth pastor or for the parent because I'm one of them, you know, in, yeah. in, in many ways, you know, so um, I'm really in some ways writing about myself in, in the way I've been kind of co-opted into certain kind of cultural forms. But I did have the chance to interview some parents and I don't know that it's really quite, I wouldn't want to defend it as like this deep so sociological, social scientifically viable research. It was more like, I think I say in the book, a kind of the way a screenwriter does a drive along with mm -hmm. a police officer to write a detective mm -hmm. movie or something, yeah, you know, yeah. um, it was more kind of that, it, but it really was quite informative. And so I, I talked to these parents across the kind of uh, continuum of Protestantism from really mainline liberal parents to very conservative evangelical parents, and even a, a, a set of parents that hadn't been to church probably ever, um, but were super, super involved in the local basketball association. And we're probably out of all the parents I interviewed, it, again, this is quite subjective, but we're probably the best parents. And they were so invested in their kids, spent so much time coaching their kids and things like that. But one of the most fascinating things of all these parents I interviewed, this, this little word kept popping up that was so important for them as they raised their kids. And they kept on saying, it's so important for our child to find her or his thing. They have to find their thing. If they don't find their thing, then they won't know who they are. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't find their thing, they won't be happy. Like the, there was this in, incredible push for these middle-class parents. And I should say that, like they were across the continuum when it came to like religious commitment were, were, were quite diverse, but they were all middle-class. And this book really is kind of thinking about middle-class parents, not because middle-class parents are the best um, or deserve attention, but there are kind of culturally certain ways that middle-class parenting practice informs all other parenting practice 
often for ill more than for good mm. and um and just kind of frames our culture in so many ways and so i just became really fascinated with this thing what's the thing and you know it is always a kind of sport or a musical instrument or drama or uh you know something like that but it was amazing to me how these middle class parents would and it's amazing how i do this that the, the really driving force of helping their kid find the good life was they had to find their thing the thing was so deeply important and one of the ways that that really subscribes itself into the kind of context of ministry or the church is that youth ministry so easily becomes one of those things amongst all these other things you know where soccer is a thing and mm -hmm. and learning a second language is a thing and a musical instrument is, is is a thing driver's ed is a thing like all of these things that start to organize young people's lives and what will have to happen for middle class people with some kind of sense of privilege is they start having to make some evaluations about which ones you're going to really commit to. You can't do everything. You know, you're a finite human being. And at some point, the soccer tournament and the youth group night or the ninth grade retreat is going to conflict. And how do you make the decision that you make? And my wager was that the way we make those decisions and often those decisions being more just reflexes than even kind of rationally thought out decisions tends to reveal what we kind of view as the good life and how we think the good life is shapes our, our young people's lives. And so part of my push particularly to youth pastors was that man the youth group itself is in this kind of cultural context where parents are so invested in their kid finding their thing it will be really really hard to convince them that going to youth group on wednesday night is as important as playing in the region three you know uh u15 consolation game of a soccer tournament you know it just it almost doesn't seem like a choice to kids like uh, or to, to parents like oh I, I would love for my kid to go to church i would love for my kid to continue to go to youth group but we have we have a soccer tournament. We 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 can't do that. So there's a certain way where that that thing becomes more important. That thing holds more gravity for for parents. And uh, I think you know, talking to ministers, it's interesting. We, we should unpack what that means for parents. But for for ministers and pastors, I do try to. I want to release them from trying to compete with the thing. Like I'm I'm not so sure that it is even worth doing. Is right. you know to try to make your church youth ministry as dynamically engaging as swimming or something like right, that like right. sometimes you'll hear young youth pastors say things like well if kids will get up at five in the morning for you know preseason football training they should get up at five in the morning and read their bible and you know when i was young i thought oh that's really passionate now i look at those people with compassion and think I hope you wear a helmet to work because you're going to be banging your head against your wall for a long time, concussing yourself, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's a, it's a beautiful ambition, but there's so many other cultural forces that keep that from ever, you know, being a realistic option. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Um, just uh, by way of background here on, on my end of, of the conversation. So my wife and I, we cut our, our teeth in youth ministry in the nineties and in the early aughts. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you could make a pretty good run at programming. And if you had the, yeah. if you had the right sources, if you had the right people, if you had the right discipleship strategy, if you had the right outlets, you know, you could, you could really um, encourage young people to be on this pathway of discovery of identity. That's, that's founded on Christ. 
Um, and, uh, and then, you know, through that process, they get to, they get to really, you know, explore their personalities going forward to think and to be praying about, wow, what was I created here to do? What, what, how am I wired to function on planet earth and in God's kingdom? But that is not the case anymore. You know, um, what you're saying is the, the, the program end of things become problematic, both, uh, for, uh, parachurch and church organizations. And then I would say it gets confusing, for parents, and and I'll let you respond to this because this is just a hypothesis on my end, is that you know you're talking about finding a a piece about your identity if it's tied to a certain aspect of significance. What's yeah. your thing? What's your thing? But in this day and age, in the 2020s, significance is tied to notoriety, mm-hmm. and and notoriety for for a teenager has a lot to do with social media platforms, of course, but notoriety for a parent is a lot of the staging that happens so that you can get into the college of your choice, the career of your choice and so forth. So am I, am I in the ballpark with that? Like, what do you think about that hypothesis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there, it is an interesting thing where, you know, uh, we don't have to make this too youth ministry centric, but where youth ministry is a kind of, uh, uh, canary in the in the mine shaft because you're right like in the 90s and maybe even in some places in the early 2000s but for sure like at youth ministries heyday in the 70s 80s and 90s um I mean, this is an overstatement, but not much. Like kids didn't have a ton to do in the way. One of my examples when I do presentations on this is to think about the Netflix show. See, we have to do TV here to be yeah, a yeah. really a, a, yeah. a conversation I'm with me. With you. Keep but it coming, to think yeah. of the net, yeah, to think of the Netflix show Stranger Things. You know, right. like in Stranger Stranger Things, of I, I would imagine most people know what we're talking about. But it's you know a period piece based in like the mid '80s. And these kids who are fighting, you know, this sci-fi demigorg monsters. But when you think about that show as a kind of cultural text it only can work as a period piece you know it can only work that it's 1984 if it was 2014 or 2022 mikey could not be in a junkyard fighting a demigorg monster from another dimension because he would have baseball practice right and there's no way his parents i mean it's really one of the humorous things of season one and two is that mikey's middle class suburban parents are great 1980s parents they're clueless they provide hot meals and they eat a meal every night together they provide a really cool basement where the kids can just be alone and do their own thing but besides that they are completely clueless they are permissive and part of being a good parent was to give your kid permissive space to be free and to do whatever they wanted. And that led to a lot of kind of growing up fast and, you know, drinking and driving fast and doing doing a lot of that. And the youth group was really important in that. There wasn't much else you were doing as a kid. Maybe you were um you know, maybe you were playing a sport or whatever, but you had a lot of free time in the 80s and 90s, you know, like a lot of free time. You used to go to most communities and there were high school kids gathered in parking lots doing nothing right. but re- revving their engines and then driving up and down the streets. And I suppose you can find that some places, but that is not good use of time for most middle-class upwardly mobile families and kids now now your whole life is scheduled and organized you know so that there moves to a different parenting style i think into the you know maybe the late aughts and into our own time where it is a it's very much an oversight parenting um but it's not oversight as a a kind of prison guard it's oversight as a as a friend as a coach yeah. as someone who's going before you in preparing all of these 
other programs you're involved in, all these other things that you might cash those in for mm-hmm. a future good life. Like this is one of the most diabolical things I think that our culture does to all of us, but we don't really have any content to the good life. We have mm. really no sense of what it means to live the good life right. right now. The only way we can even think about the good life is having any kind of normative weight or any kind of significance that should frame our moral imagination is we think about it in the future. So it's always projected Mm -hmm. in the future. So we tell our kids all the time, like, you got to get good grades. You really should at least play JV soccer. You really should do this, do that. And and when they ask why, we're not exactly sure other than, well, you'll learn to work hard and, and maybe you'll meet the right people and you'll be able to essentially cash that in for whatever dream you want in yeah, the future. Yeah, so yeah. the good life is always a dream that's projected ahead of you. And it goes exactly what you're saying, that it leads that the, the self becomes a very performative self, always in performance, always trying to accrue, um, try to parlay even, you know, JV soccer into something more. And that becomes incredibly exhausting and a very different parenting style where instead of giving your kids space um and maybe a, a roof over their head you're trying to kind of uh well you're you're trying to manage their life and manage their engagement um with all sorts of different resources so that they can cash those in for whatever dream they want to live in the future though we don't really help them have any content to what that dream yeah. might be what's a dream worth living you know yeah, yeah. fascinating and uh you know, what's coming to mind uh, here as you're talking, of course, I've had the privilege of looking through your book several times, reading and, and continuing to reference it, is, you know, you are, you're talking about parents that are trying to cast a vision without any uh, concrete certainty to it, because the things that grant significance are, are always shifting, they're always changing, there's so many variables to it, of course. And on top of that, uh, if I could, I'm going to try to tie this in and then uh, and, and get you to talk about it uh, more in depth, is there, there has been, uh, you know, with that parenting shift, which just you, you, you capture that in such a fantastic way in the book, but parents want to, in, a, in an effort to set their kids up, you know, for whatever is their thing, they believe the best context to facilitate and discover that is in this insulated uh, zone of where happiness abounds. And so what what is missing a lot of times is struggle or pain that can be tied to stories that can be tied to understanding. So just, just really briefly, let me jump back. So you've mentioned permissive parenting, which was definitely, you know, that's definitely middle-class eighties for sure. Um, uh, From a clinician standpoint, we, we can most of the time categorize uh, parents into, into four broad categories. Uh, There are are negligent uh, strategies of parenting, permissive, uh, strategies of parenting, authoritarian strategies of parenting, and authoritative. Uh, negligent is really straightforward. The parents are non-existent. They're hands-off. It's a lot of chaos for children to grow up in that. Uh, you have a, a lot of mental health issues that stem from that. Uh, permissive parenting, I would say, are parents who are very high in support, but they're really sort of loose in any sort of standards or accountability or game plan, you know, things like that. They just sort of roll with it, let it happen. You are your child's friend. Interestingly enough, we know now that 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 definitely cultivates insecurity 
in a child because they're not too sure where the boundaries are. And, and it's just yeah. way too subjective at a time where they need a little more narrow focus in their life. Authoritarian uh, parenting, of course, that's the one that, that makes everybody's hair on the back of their neck stand on edge because that's, that's your strict parents who are very clear with expectations, very clear, you know, with what the family name means, but they're very low in support. And so most of the time we would say, I, I, I would say family systems wise, when it comes to uh, family counseling, you're trained to help parents understand what is authoritative parenting and strategies. And the idea is high in support and high in boundaries, goal setting, what are the standards? But here's the thing. Um, we've shifted with the idea of authoritative parenting in support from being, um, you know, helicopter parenting. But now we've, we've gravitated into the 20 teens and on, on into the 2020s with this phenomenon that I, I would, I've heard it labeled snowplow, bulldozer, yeah. lawnmower parenting. And the idea yeah. is uh, parents make an intentional, often aggressive attempt to remove all obstacles from their child's past. So they don't experience pain, failure, discomfort. What, what are your thoughts on that, especially as it involves adolescence? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, yeah, it, the way you, you lay those four out are really helpful. And it is fascinating to think about those of us who are raised in the kind of permissive parenting style that creates all sorts of insecurity. And if you have that insecurity meet this real drive that I think we all feel that you you referenced earlier, this kind of performative self that you got to do more, that you that it's up to you to to kind of be a magnificent self, you know, that mm. that next to insecurity can create all sorts of huge forms of anxiety and even you know borderline forms of depression and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and yet, th that's how we were raised out of that kind of insecurity, and we then raise our children very differently which becomes in, in many ways maybe we, we there's there's other cultural reasons we want to avoid the authoritarian but to be authoritative becomes i think where we all want to be but like you're saying i do think i, I read something the other day that was really helpful that in, that in parenting instead of preparing their kids for the road we try to prepare the road for our kids and that, I think, is what's happened with a lot of middle class parents and the sociologist Annette uh, Laro calls this concerted cultivation, mm -hmm. that we're always making this concerted effort to cultivate something in our kids, which at one level is really good. But if we have if that comes out of this kind of insecurity and this deep form of anxiety, uh, there's a major difference between preparing your kids for the road, kind of authoritatively preparing for the road. We've been there. We know what this takes and authority and, and, and then doing it to prepare the road like that's becomes a very different reality. And that's what the bulldozing parent does is prepare the road and sometimes try to to create a new road for their kid if the if the old road all of a sudden seems seems closed, which I think we did see in COVID a lot, like a lot of parents really angry with institutions or schools for one decision or the other. It didn't matter what the decision was, but angry because they felt like it was a roadblock for their kid right. and they couldn't be a good parent unless that road was cleared and it was their job to clear that road. So just no wonder parents are utterly exhausted but it also gets so deeply complicated i think because what gives the authority to go to go before i think 
becomes often the results you can get. It becomes very yes. functional, you know? So it is what will validate all the work we've done is like what you said earlier, our kid gets into this school or they win this award or they're known in the community as this great person. That becomes it. And so we do have to ask our question, like what sets the trajectory for what becomes authoritative or normative for us. And one of the places I'm trying to push in the book is to say, really what does that are stories and narratives, you know? So the best way to parent our kids in the way that the church can really support our young people is not to try to win more of their, their time necessarily. I mean, we need some time obviously, but it isn't trying to like win more of their time and be another social media site trying to win their attention. But what we really need that transforms us is narratives and stories. And Mm -hmm. What parents need, I think, to learn to do is is how to tell their kids stories, uh, stories about what life, ma- what makes life good. But you can only really tell stories about what makes life good and full if you're willing to tell stories about the times you found that it's opposite. You know, right. like where where you found yourself at a dead end, where you right. found yourself even over and against your best best efforts, um, mm-hmm. that you found that it it, it came to not like, you know, Mm -hmm. finding yourself in in forms of suffering and loss, like to be able to make those confessions and those stories, I think is what really ends up forming our own children. And I think really the life of the church too, is, is to, to provide those kind of narratives and stories. Cause my sense is that that's where our identities are formed anyhow, you know, like that's one of the beauties of, of counseling and therapy is that you rework your stories that you mm-hmm. you have someone to tell your story to that you have someone to interpret your story and that that becomes incredibly incredibly powerful right and i think what we're right. often doing in our middle class with parents uh, parenting is we're giving our kids a lot of programmed opportunities but not a lot of stories yeah um, yeah and so i think that they're not deficient in any way in baseball coaches and in tutors but they're very deficient in people who tell them stories. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm just soaking this in, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, because again, it goes back to significance tied to notoriety. I think you make a great argument too, in the book that the confirmation that you're on the right path is, is, is happiness. That's the parent's intuition that even though, you know, the, an adolescent, by the way, it's impossible for them to imagine anything more than maybe four to six weeks in the future that part of the brain has not formed yet. And so they've got to sort of take the parents word for it. And at the same time, you know, they're not capable of really discerning, is that actually true? And so the confirmation, I think that a lot of parents try to instill is happiness. Yeah. Talk to us here about that as, as, you know, parents, we need to understand, you know, what we're sort of conditioning our children uh, into what space we're conditioning them into. Life. Yeah. And, and I think this is where it's really interesting to think about kind of insecure, anxious parents trying to go before their kids to protect them from some of that anxiousness, end up imposing them into a world where anxiety becomes everywhere. Um, because there is this sense, I mean, there it is a strange thing. And I think we do this particularly as Americans, but probably as Westerners overall, that we concede happiness is like, you know, you sometimes hear parents say, well, you know, we wanted him to make the team or we, we wanted her to do this or that. But at the end, all that really matters is that they're happy. 
Like we just want them to be happy. Like you'll settle for just happiness at the end or really at the very end of the day, you just want your kid to be happy. And it's it's really hard for us to even imagine how we would think beyond that because it's just so ingrained in us. But for most of human history, particularly the like the philosophical and um, uh, realities that kind of give us our world we're in now, no one would think that any human being should live to be happy. Like, you know, right. like whether with whether in a biblical framework or like a, a, a Greek philosophical framework, no one would ever think like happiness is the very thing you should aim at in your life. But mm-hmm. when we say that, I'm sure there's some people listening to this like, what? Like that feels like me saying that the sky is not blue anymore. You know what I mean? Like, of course, we, we just want happiness, but that's a very different way of thinking. Now, no one should be against happiness, you know, like. I don't think we should affirm any life philosophy that's opposed to happiness. Happiness is something that maybe comes at the end of your life when you realize you've lived a, a life well, that you've lived a, a good life. But for us now, it becomes everything. Like mm-hmm. everything is this sense of happiness. And we think we want our kid to be happy because it does reveal that they know who they are, that they have a solid identity. And if they know who they are, then they can be happy. And if they're happy, then they know who they are. It's like this kind of back and forth circle that plays there. But the the crazy thing about this kind of cultural reality that we're in, where we can just say, I just want my kid to be happy, is that we do really believe, and this is what traps parents, is that we think that that's somehow an, an affect, a feeling that you feel on your own. Like I, I just, I feel happy, but that's just not how the human being is constituted. Right, I mean, it, right. it goes back to our, our kind of sense of how story and narrative works. There has to be a dialogue. There has to be a conversation, whether it's explicit conversation or it's an implicit conversation, there has to be some kind of conversation. So that means at some level we need the, the, evaluation we need the gaze we we need the conversation with another person and if happiness is our end then what we need at some level to feel happy is for other people to affirm us to recognize us just how we want to be recognized well that's really hard so if you're a parent and you just want your kid to be happy and but they need recognition to be happy then all the youtube videos of parents beating up coaches and screaming at school administrators all of a sudden makes a lot of sense because right your kid's happiness becomes dependent on that coach, that teacher, that other kid at that school, recognizing your kid, how that your kid needs to be recognized to be happy. Um, and so happiness doesn't, we sometimes say it, like I said, like, oh, we'll just settle for that. Or, or as long as they're happy within themselves, but to be a human being is to be, it is a social languaged animal. Like we need mm-hmm. other people. That's what it means. And at some level you need someone to speak into your life. And if your job as a parent is to be that bulldozer parent who prepares the road, then you've got to keep all haters out of your kid's life. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you never be kind of authoritatively violent toward your kid necessarily, but you would be to anyone who doesn't see your kid the way your kid should be seen. Right. And again, I understand those feelings. Like there's nothing that hurts more than to know there's a depth and there's, you know, there's, there's a gift that your kid has and then have someone else say, nope, not interested in this kid being around or yeah. they yeah. can't be on this team or yeah. we're, no, we don't see those same things you see in your kid. That hurts deeply. Right. Right. Um, and again, if we don't have narratives and stories of how to deal with disappointment and pain, then that just becomes such an existential problem mm-hmm. that you are, you don't even have a, a way to, to make sense of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then it easily becomes the good parent uh, has to to walk this very thin line between always advocating for their kid and making sure the world is recognizing their kid as they should be recognized, and not letting that lead into beating up the hockey coach in the parking lot. You know what I mean? Like it, you have right, to walk right. this very thin line of of always being your kids like. Um, promotional uh your promotional guide but at the same time you know not leading it into becoming a youtube uh a viral video yeah yeah let, let me transition if i can here uh to uh to covid outcomes yeah. um on the same vein that we're that we're sort of flowing in in here right now uh you know as a uh, as a clinician but specifically as a as a christian psychotherapist a christian counselor mm-hmm. one of the biggest challenges that i have is getting people to understand that that happy happiness is ethereal um yeah. it doesn't you it doesn't necessarily have a sequenced cause and effect uh what causes a smile to appear on your face quickly can also leave you as quickly but when you get into a space where you're talking to somebody who is struggling because they have you know diagnosable depression they have acute anxiety uh you know they are they are they are stressed out and they will say i just want to be happy and you get them talking about happiness what they're describing is a sense of peace. Yeah. And, and so from a, from a Christian standpoint, well, we've got a, we've got an answer for that. And, you know, and from a mental health standpoint, we can even help a person understand how do you begin to simplify things so that this storm that is brewing there uh, can be quieted within you. And, and I know for years and years, uh, you know, theologians, pastors, Sunday school teachers, they'd take exception with happiness and they would promote joy because joy is the fruit of the spirit. And and I get that. And I think that that's definitely, you know, what I, what I see in my elderly parents right now, they have joy, uh, but uh, their life is a struggle right now. But on top of that, there's this, there's this peace, you know, our, our Jewish friends would greet each other with the word Shalom. And it's a, it's an idea of peace that is, that is inner wellness. And what you're talking about in the power of story and communicating with each other, uh, it gives the opportunity for what we call, uh, in, in a clinic attunement. Yeah. And, and attuning to another person is the act of, of, of empathy and assurance. It's not fixing a problem at all. It is saying, Hey, I respect what is going on in your inner world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, we, we have studies that have shots of, of MRI scans where regardless of if the problem is being solved, just to be understood yeah. automatically yeah. decreases that stress and brings the rational part of the brain back online to where they're not in in survival mode anymore and that's the power of, of what you're explaining i mean that's that's exactly what you're describing the power of story of talking with each other of being heard of being listened to and then came COVID, <laughs> and then there's all this isolation right right so i, I would be very interested in you know, what you've written and, and what you've explained pre COVID in this, this book that we're primarily talking about yeah. to, 
What are some of the trends and attitudes you are spotting now in the U.S. as we are launching into the new normal of whatever that is here at the onset of a of, of a fall school year? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you said is what I see is is just people coming out of deep forms of feeling isolated, and actually the isolation that existed before COVID happened, and then the way COVID just made that so much worse um and then coming out of that kind of isolation to me the the experience is is often been manifested in in a a few different ways and i'm probably sure you're seeing in the in the clinic all the time is is one just pure exhaustion like people just absolutely exhausted and you know this this kind of sense of needing to bulldoze for your kid or make sure every you, you know, w- continue to win your recognition and, and win your approval um, and win affirmation. It, it's just let people to be utterly exhausted, I think. And so there, the, the sense of burnout or the fear of burnout, even for people who maybe aren't burnt out, the fear of burnout is just really there. Mm-hmm. And then the response to that is either I think people to feel really uh, a lack of affect and a a lack of a sense where they feel engaged with the world or to be super angry, which I think Mm -hmm. we're probably seeing more that people are just mad and they're not exactly sure what they're mad about. Um, But there becomes all sorts of objects then to be mad about, whether it's the people on the other side of the political spectrum or, you know, well, that seems to be everything these days, you know, like it's your kid's teacher, but it's because your kid's teacher is of the different political persuasion than you or whatever, that we just can become angry at, at, at everything. And uh, I do think it has this kind of sense also of thinking about, like we said, the good life being a projection into the future. And then all of a sudden, all of the ways that you were moving into the future halt, and you're kind of stuck with, well, what is, what's the meaning of my life? And you're, you kind of get slapped upside the head with meaninglessness and a response for a lot of us, especially in the social media world where there becomes almost, uh, well, de- very depersonalized conversations going on all the time, stories that actually don't address our lives, but are just kind of hitting us everywhere. Right. Uh, it becomes really easy for us then to look for people to blame and to feel deep forms of, of resentment. So I worry kind of post COVID that, that, you know, resentment just becomes something that that cat captures all of us and, and affects us in a, in a very, really negative way. Yeah. I think that's well put. I, I, I think COVID seriously disrupted high control parenting mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I, I would say that that in and of itself is frustrating coming out of it. A parent has very little tolerance because there's a lot of time to make up. And, and on a, and on a student level, uh, it's so discouraging that, um, you know, primarily, you know, the boys that I work with, they've just, I don't know that they'll ever fit in a scheme of traditional education again for, for the most of them, because it just, you know, they, they lost so much in what should have been the progression of, you know, their education. And then even for your, your kids who comply with, with, uh, you know, high control parenting and, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're the achievers, uh, now there's this nervousness about did I learn what I needed to learn and how will that appear on my SATs? How will that appear on my ACTs? And so it's a, it's a bit of a powder keg uh, where yeah. the tolerance is so low that 
parents, I believe, don't think that they have the, the, the luxury of time to work through and to talk reasonably. So they opt to bullying, intimidation, you know, anger. Right. Uh, I think, I think you're right about that. Um, okay. So I, I could just keep you on here all day, but there's a book to be purchased if people want to learn more about this. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, so Andy, let's, let's shift to a, a bit about, uh, prevention and corrective, uh, corrective measures that can encourage our, our listeners here as we, uh, as we look to land this plane. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to work in reverse order. So if, uh, if a parent or guardian listening to the show realizes that they've been inadvertently steering their, their child or their children toward, uh, these fragile, uncertain goals of, you know, significance of happiness, uh, what can they do? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is the one potentially good thing that came out of COVID or could have been good during the, the time of it, which is that everything for high control parents, particularly stopped. You resented that, that led you to existential crisis, but it did mean, instead of rushing to soccer um, and driving across the state that you actually had a chance to sit down with your, your kid. And so I still think it's not too late that we really do have to have conversations with our adolescent kids, particularly about what is the good life? What, what does that mm -hmm. mean? And mm -hmm. even if we're kind of confused about it, to open up that, um, I mean, it, it is a strange thing about our, our cultural reality that we, we just rarely even think about it. I mean, it, it frames us in certain ways and we, we adopt even malformed views of the good life all the time, but uh, do we ever sit down with it and, mm. and talk about it? So mm -hmm. I, I think that really sitting down with your kid and thinking about what is the good life and then you narrating in some ways what you think the good life is, you know, mm -hmm. where, when have been times where you felt caught up in living well, um, where life was was lived well. And my guess is there's a pretty good story there because yeah. it, it, I think it often comes out of disappointment and loss and, mm -hmm. and pain. And we do talk about how we want our kids to have resiliency now and things like that. I, I, I you know, the, there's no way to build resiliency other than having to go through moments where you need to be resilient. But one of the ways to prepare for those moments is to hear the, re the stories of people who have done it, you know, and, and when those people are really close to you, like your parents or your uncle or your aunt or your grandparents, um, that's really powerful. Um, so, I, you know, um, my first step of intervention is how do we learn again to kind of deliver to our kids a sense of the good life of what it means to live well now? Um, and how do we narrow that, narrate that for them? Yeah. And you give us a youth ministry hack in your book that I think would be so good for parents to mm -hmm. practice first in front of their kids. And that is, instead of trying to pin a kid down and say, Hey, who are you? Uh, you ask, Hey, what's, what's I, and I can't quote this directly, but it, you, you say, Hey, think about asking what's, what's been one of the best moments of your life. What's been one of the most yeah. saddest moments of your life. What's the story yeah. behind those two things. Uh, and then, and then you can begin to step into formationally, who yeah. are you becoming? And I think if parents can lead with that, uh, I think that also opens up the dialogue. Uh, they become approachable. It's much less performance-based. It's yeah. being in the moment. And, uh, and I think that, that that too, you know, really helps a teenager, uh, you know, rest in the fact that, um, you know, maybe I'm not letting mom and or dad down if I'm yeah. struggling here because yeah. they too, they too know, you know, maybe a little bit what it's like to be 
in my shoes. What, uh, what, what advice would you have for, for church leaders, uh, for clergy, for youth pastors, leaders, and so forth, who, you know, they, they are coming out of the, you know, trying time to build, you know, to keep some semblance of community and the support that faith community offers, you know, families, uh, what, what advice would you offer to that particular group of listeners? Yeah. I mean, the main advice I would give them is, uh, to breathe, you know, to, to breathe. And I I think this is a moment where we can really feel like if we don't do more, if we don't make up for that lost time, I mean, I think parents feel this, I think church leaders feel this. If we don't make up for lost time, um, decline will set in to such an extent that it will be, um, it'll be terminal. And I, I do think that is, there's some truth in that and there is some reason to be anxious, but there also needs to be a remembering. And I guess it takes us back to narrative again, a remembering that um, at the end of the day, this church is God's church and mm-hmm. God is responsible for mm-hmm. this church. And that the only way the church can survive and the only way the church could ever survive, even in the best of the moments, is to remember that it is the body of the living Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So um, how do we breathe and learn to pray and learn to narrate the depth yes. of, of yes. the stories of scripture. Um, and so when I mean, when I say breathe, it's like breathe. It's not about the program numbers. It's not right. about sitting down with a spreadsheet and saying, okay, 2018, 2019, this is how many people participated. Mm-hmm. Now 2022, mm-hmm. this is how many people participated. There's things to learn from that. I'm not saying that we should stick our head in the sand, but there's gotta be a, a a larger moral horizon. There's got to be a different purpose than just um, kind of getting back to our our numbers. There's got to be a deeper way we live into that. So I guess I would also say that you need to harvest the stories of your congregation, right? And um, you know, encourage parents to tell, like we were just saying to parents, and encourage them to talk to kids about that. But young people also, you know, as as you know better than I do, they they will not hear their parents' stories. His parents need to tell their kids their stories, but they will not hear them. But a, a story told by, you know, even 75-year-old Betty, who tells mm-hmm. the story about how she got through her cancer treatments and what it you know meant for her, that those stories are impactful and they come from somebody outside your home as well, but are who are in your community. So yeah. um, I would say become really, really interested in, um, being a kind of detective of the significant stories in your community. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And especially, I think uh, with Protestantism and um, and especially the emphasis on um, on on the scriptures, on the Bible. Um, and I and I attend a Bible church, so I'm not taking anything away from that. I think in certain circles of uh, of Protestantism, oftentimes the Trinity is misunderstood as God, the father, God, the son, and the Holy Bible. Yeah, right. uh, but, uh, but, but the scriptures rightfully so have the stories yeah. that can lead to in a catalytic way, um, you know, the, the personal application through people who are a little further down the road than us, right. if they're willing to share, if they're willing to engage in, in the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. And, and, uh, and just the story of, you know, uh, pain is and struggle is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, it's a fascinating concept, you know, how the rhythm of life and God's, uh, you know, oversight of it, often works in that way of growing us in spite of our agendas. And I think that's a good word, you know, that you're giving uh, church leaders there. 
Um, yeah, I, I think one of the most overlooked influencers that I've ever been, uh, you know, on planet earth, there's this little obscure verse in the Bible that talks about the men of Issachar and how valuable they were to Israel because they could discern the times that they were living in, you know, that whole, that, yeah, that whole collective family. And so, you know, for, for many churches, if I'm understanding you right, uh, you know, the opportunity of COVID is not just a relaunch, but a reboot in the way that we, that we approach storytelling, because before the invention of the printing press, what, what did we have, but storytelling, right? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to pontificate there or go, go off on that, but But it uh, is the stories that hold us together. You know, it is the stories that, that bind us together. Yeah. So true. Um, our guest today has been Dr. Andy Root, professor of youth and family ministry at Luther seminary. Uh, Andy, where can listeners find out more about your work and resources? Yeah, probably the best place to go is I have a website that's just uh, andrewroot.org. They can go there, um, or they can also find me, though I'm not a very good user of Twitter. I am on Twitter, um, that cesspool of Twitter that's out there. I uh, Usually I'm just looking at like sports stories and dog videos is what I use Twitter for, but I, I am on that. I think I'm root, root and Andrew at Twitter, but probably the best place is my website, so uh, andrewroot.org. Okay. And let's not forget when the church stops working. That's right. New podcast. Is that available on, uh, on most major platforms? Yep, it is. Yeah. Apple or uh, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, you'll find it. So. All right. We'll be sure to have all that in the show notes. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks. It's been a really great conversation. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, thoughts on that, Michael. I, I'm super interested in just, uh, I know as uh, as you and your wife, Melissa, have had the privilege of listening to the interview. Uh, just what are some comments? Yeah. Yeah. We, we sat down and we listened to the interview last night. And um, I think in a lot of ways, it was just, it was a confirmation uh, for us. And, you know, obviously we're still at the beginning uh, and, and just laying the groundwork for what, uh, what life is going to look like for our, for our kids. Um, but, but I think that we have a philosophy that is in many ways countercultural. It sounds like um, just because we don't really see ourselves as you know the, those parents that are going to just you know flood their kids' schedule with a bunch of extracurriculars to to try to get them to you know that next opportunity you know way down the road or or, or whatever. I, I think that you know we're we're more of the of the philosophy that we just we we want to allow our kids the space to be kids mm-hmm, and, you know, just mm-hmm. to, to play in the backyard yeah. and, and pretend, I think, you know, it's okay. Even if they're, if they're bored sometimes, yeah. because that's how they learn to use their imaginations. And, and, and I just, to some degree, it just kind of breaks my heart seeing uh, just the, the way that all of these things that just, you know, are, that are competing for the thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it can, I mean, it can lead to stress. I mean, not only for the, for the kids, but for the parents as well. I mean, having to, to go from one thing to the next and never mm-hmm. having any downtime. Mm-hmm. And there's, we, we know that we don't want that for, for our kids. Yeah. I, you know, 
as I've reflected on the conversation and just some things that I know you and I have, have talked about here while, while we weren't recording, more and more the culture that, that we live in, that people are trying to raise their kids in, it's so binary. And what I mean by that, there's usually one of two primary camps that people gravitate towards. And so in the one camp that we've detailed here today are very concerned, invested, intentional parents. Uh, and then in the other end of that spectrum are parents who, uh, you know, they, they derive a sense of identity with their kids and they, they really have uh, insecurity about their kids leaving, moving forward in life, achieving adulthood, uh, creating their own, their own uh pathway, their own journey. And so sometimes consciously, a lot of times subconsciously, the phenomenon, this is especially true here in Appalachia, is parents will suppress uh, you know, their children's aspirations in order to ensure that they stay close to home hmm. and retain that sense of family first okay. identity. And, and, uh, and, and both of those, those extreme ends of this spectrum are not ideally, I think, what, what we're hoping for with our kids. And that's especially true with, uh, you know, training our kids to a point to where when they step into adulthood, they not only feel confident, but they have some sense of God's leading in their life. And so calling people to the middle, I think, is is so crucial. And I know for me, uh, you know, that really impacted at some points the friendships that we were able to cultivate with our peers whose children were the same age because... We just couldn't travel along the same road or same philosophy at times. Is that, mm, yeah. is, you know? Well, I think there's definitely truth and it's somewhere in the middle. I thought of that particularly in the interview when you guys are talking about the, the, you know, the four different, uh, the, the four different parenting styles, uh, you know, cause I think it's somewhere in the middle. It's, you know, you don't want to, to swing to the extreme of the, you know, the really, uh, of the really authoritarian, um, you don't know, you don't, you also don't want to be leaving them on their own to fight their right. own monsters, you right, know, to use right. the stranger things metaphor. Right, um, right. but, uh, you know, you, you want to be somewhere in the middle and, you know, it's a, it's a tough balance to strike. I think sometimes, and we all have our different points along the spectrum where, where that falls, but you know, you want to be, um, you, you know, you want to give them the space to be kids, but you, you know, also want to, to protect them and, uh, to, to nurture them, uh, in a way that's very meaningful. So, so I think, I think it is, it, it is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, Michael, if I may, I, I want to highlight something that Andy said, and, and I'm, I'm quoting this the best that I can. He said, are we preparing our kids for the road? Or are we trying to prepare the road for our kids? Yeah. That is a good question. It is. So it's our hope that today's episode proves to be catalytic uh, for you, our listeners. Maybe you are a parent of a school-aged child, or you are the parent of a young child, or a grandparent, or you are friends with a parent who could benefit from today's content. If so, we want to encourage you to take the conversation deeper with personal thought and application be sure to check out the show notes for helpful links and resources. And of course, you know, as always, we want to encourage you, our listeners, to, to give us a hand. Um, 
subscribe to our podcast uh, on your your platform of choice. That way, you get our episodes as soon as they drop every time. Uh, and yeah, you know, share them with your friends. Uh, leave us a, a good review. You know, these things really do help us, and we want to be able to to help more people because we're here to help. Thanks, Michael. So until next time, I'm Chris Campbell. And I'm Michael Gum. We'll meet up again at our next episode drop.